Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. If you joined us last week, you heard the first part of uh, Dr. Ashley Suwa's story. We learned about how she became a physician, starting out as an athletic trainer and in college and kind of learned more about the field and then pursued this pathway to medicine, ultimately becoming a surgeon, now a transplant surgeon. This week, we're going to hear that second half of her journey. We're going to hear more specifics about her role and her job as a transplant surgeon and just an incredible, incredible story, an incredible field, which again, doesn't get much exposure, especially if you are underrepresented in medicine, maybe a first generation medical student, second generation medical student, you know, being a transplant surgeon probably seems unattainable to most people. But uh, Dr. Suwa, she did it. She's living proof of what you can accomplish when you set your mind to it. We'll learn about the things that she's doing, you know, the diseases that affect the black community that affect uh, minorities uh, in this country. One of the ones that comes to top of mind is kidney disease, renal failure in the black communities. So to have a surgeon who's able to fix that disease, replace those damaged kidneys and restore life is such an incredible thing that we should definitely cherish. I am so happy for this episode. Dr. Suwa or Ashley is a really good friend of mine. If you've been following us for a while, you'll know notice a trend. I have a lot of folks on from the University of Chicago because that institution played such an incredible role in shaping me into the physician, the ethicist, the critical care uh, medicine physician that I am today. First met Ashley, uh, we mentioned this briefly last episode, we were both interns and you know, we, we develop a bond, a friendship. We had a nice little core group at University of Chicago with uh, Jared Miller, uh, James Oyeniyi, and many others that I can't, uh, you know, just too many people to name. And I was thinking back about how much fun we actually had in residency. I know you don't always hear that. You know, residency is tough. It's, it's tough. It's a lot of learning, a lot of training, a lot of work hours, and it's easy to get bogged down. And yeah, we all suffer through bouts of depression and seasonal affective disorder, just like everybody else. But we at the University of Chicago had such an incredible, supportive community. During our time, one of the lasting legacies that we had was the House Staff Diversity Committee. I I can't take the credit for starting that uh, organization, but I think it was uh, our friend Dovey, who is now an infectious disease physician, and Ashley and uh, Dr. Bianca Bush, the college psychiatrist, who's frequently uh, a guest on this episode, and, and Dr. Nate Jones, who's one of the co-hosts, we all together were very influential in the start of the House Staff Diversity Committee. I think Dovey was the actual person that put pen to paper. And essentially, we needed more diversity. We needed more support for underrepresented in medicine minorities. And I think it was Dovey went to her program leadership the internal medicine department, and they were able to secure funding for this house staff diversity committee. And we would meet on a semi-regular basis. I, one of my, my fondest memories of residency was having over 40 people in uh, my condo and on the south side of Chicago. And I made like a bunch of uh, food. I think it was Thai curry or something. And we, and we all just like ate and played games, and just had a good time. Thinking back, because, you know, for folks that are looking at different residency programs, I was just talking with a mentee about programs that lack diversity. And it's tough if you look at these programs online and they're all homogenous and not homogenous in a way that looks like you, looks like like every other program out there probably. And I, I just mentioned, you know, that there's so much other diversity 
that you will see at these institutions. Once you pool, hopefully pool everybody from different residency programs, you'll have a, a lot more people that look like you. You, you. We all know we're overrepresented in the environmental services field. So all the folks that are you know, working in the hospitals in the background, that's you know, part of your support system. I know it was for me at the University of Chicago. But we were able to, to build this house staff diversity committee in the anesthesia residency program at the University of Chicago. When I started back in 2014, there were pretty much was like one, one or two black residents uh, a year. So if you looked at the program, it, it was not very diverse. And then after I left, you know, they went through a little stretch where there, there wasn't too many people. And now, you know, the numbers are just growing by leaps and bounds. And I was just fortunate to go back for fellowship and, and to see you know, the number of uh, Black residents in their anesthesia program having increased. That's the work of people at multiple levels in the, in the institution, from the medical school side to uh, attendings and program directors that care about their residency program reflecting the community that they serve. And they know the impact and significance of uh, culturally competent care. So hats off to Dr. Monica Vela. She was one person that was incredibly influential at University of Chicago. I think she's at University of Illinois, Chicago now. She did an incredible work in increasing the diversity at uh, the Prisker School of Medicine, Dr. Kimmy Carter. And she's one of the emergency medicine physicians, uh, hugely influential and impactful with uh, the Prisker School of Medicine. Dr. Chrissy Babcock, she's the emergency medicine program director who she's got to be one of the most diverse emergency medicine programs in the country. And of course, uh, Dr. Stephen Estime, who has been a recent guest on the show, he was my chief resident when I started at University of Chicago and was my attending during fellowship. Uh, great dude. And he's uh, one of the assistant program directors. And again, focused on recruiting residents that are reflective of the patient population that you'll find in the South Side of Chicago. And there, there's a lot more to, to go into, you know, how do you choose residents and, and what do you look for? But just an incredible time reflecting on, on the experience that I had. And so I was able to meet and forge friendships with people like Ashley. It was always the goal to kind of work together one day as, as attendings. And I'd be on the other side of the drapes doing, you know, liver transplants with her kidneys. Um, and it was a very tough decision to not stay in University of Chicago. Uh, very tough decision because, uh, you know, so many friends and good people there. But I, I digress. Just wanted to share a little light on the relationship, the friendship that you were listening to in our conversation and, and how that was was forged over the, the four years. Um, I'm probably going to share a picture on the Instagram page uh, from, I think it was our PGY2 year when Ashley and I were in the OR together. I was doing the anesthesia. She was operating. And at the end of the case, you know, the patient was safe. They were just hanging out. I was probably waiting to extubate or something. And I, I asked the circulator nurse, hey, would you mind snapping a picture of us? And she kind of looked at us like, oh, okay, it's kind of weird, but you know, we made sure it was nothing important in the background. Uh, patient privacy was protected, but she snapped a picture of Ashley and I in the OR. And little did I know, you know, how incredibly impactful and invaluable that picture would be years down the road. I can look back and see kind of where we started and then contrast that with where we are today as uh, subspecialized attendings in our field. You know, it, it, it's, you know, I, I just, it's hard to put into words. This week, we're going to jump back into the rest of the story with Ashley. We're going to learn about the incredible, incredible field of transplant surgery. And, and without further ado, I'm going to ask you, how many Black women transplant surgeons do we have in the United States? 
So there are 12 that I know of and I'm, well, and I'm number 13. Yes. (laughs) And it's amazing because we have a very close knit network. I call them all my big sisters and there's, we have group chats and we ask each other for advice, personal, professional, obviously transplant questions. We're always running by each other, clinical questions, and then just kind of style things. Have you done this? Or what do you think about that sort of thing? But it's really become a mentorship pipeline. And even Dr. Scantleberry, who was the first Black female transplant surgeon, she is in this group. And it's, no way. yeah, it's amazing. When did she finish her training? A while ago. She's been retired now, but she mentors all of us. And, you know, there are many women who are in different phases of their careers. And some of the women are mentors to the rest of us. But but yeah, it's an amazing group and it's very lively. Like holidays, we're always wishing each other happy holidays. But there are a lot of things that happen in our lives. And it's just amazing to have that support network and to have women who understand and can relate and know firsthand about the training and trying to be mothers and wives and leaders of sections and departments. And so it's a privilege to be a part of the group. And it was like, as soon as they heard that I was going into the lab to do some transplant immunology, I was ushered in into the group. As a resident? Yes, as a resident. And I was getting texts, do you need anything? Or when I was getting ready for fellowship applications, we know these people and I trained here and whatever you need, we're here to help. And I mean, we have meeting, we had meetings before I started fellowship. We had meetings before I finished fellowship you know, before I started my first job and meetings, meaning like happy hours, Zooms to celebrate and encourage. And yeah, so it's been incredible to be a part of that group and to really be loved and taken care of. Dr. Chrissy Gooden sent myself and Kiara. Kiara Tola is now faculty at Oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the name of the institution. It starts with a T in New Orleans. Um, Tulane. Yes, thank you. So Kiara Tula just became faculty at Tulane. And like Dr. Gooden would send us like care packages and stuff. Like just like incredibly supportive group of women. And I mean, we talk about everything, being a woman in transplant, being a black woman in transplant. So yeah, it's been incredible being a part of that group and being cared for by that group. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say there are many coming behind me now. We have people who are about to start fellowship. We have people who are um, actively in residency. We have medical students interested in transplant surgery. So I actually, now that I'm interviewing residency candidates, many of them are saying I'm interested in transplant. And so it's amazing to be able to talk to them and share 
the love of surgery and transplant with them too. But I think there will be many more coming up behind me, which is very exciting. Super exciting. I remember you taking me down to the lab when you were, what, like putting kidney, you were anastomosing kidneys to something in little mice? Yes. So it's heart transplants that mimic a kidney transplant because it's done in the mouse's pelvis. So it's like a heterotopic heart transplant, but it's... Clearly, I didn't understand your research. (laughs) That's okay. It's okay. (laughs) You got the mice and the transplant. So yeah. yeah. yeah, And then here we are several years later. So we got to talk about transplant surgery. Yes. What pulled you into this field? Wow. A lot of different things. So number one, I just think technically the operations are the most beautiful that we do in general surgery training to me. Yes, they can be blood straightforward, again, with air quotes, a straightforward Mm -hmm. liver transplant, a straightforward Mm. kidney transplant, a, a kidney pancreas transplant. These to me are just incredible operations. And I think it's the only operation or transplant operations are the only operations that we do where you're actually curing the patient with your operation. With a liver transplant, you're removing the diseased liver and you're giving them a brand new liver. I loved surgical oncology. Like I love whipples. I love gastrectomies, esophagectomies. I love big open belly surgeries, but many times patients develop metastases or recurrences. And so you're doing these big, beautiful operations, but you're not truly curing your patients, right? They're always, I loved trauma surgery, especially the acuity and having to make decisions very quickly. And literally you're saving people's lives with these operations, but the pathophysiology of intentional violence, like Mm. the surgery does not cure that. The surgery stops bleeding and maybe you can obtain some source control if there's a bowel injury or what have you, but you're saving that patient in the moment, but often discharging them back to an environment that caused their injuries or where the pathophysiology is ongoing. I also loved vascular surgery. I like to sew blood vessels, but often in vascular surgery, it's we're just kind of temporizing. So many times a beautiful bypass will go down or vascular (laughs) disease progresses. And often you may have to end up performing amputations at some point. So to me, transplant surgery, we're actually curing the patients of their disease, you know, making urine on the table, making bile on the table, watching patients really just I love the medical management of transplant patients, the immunology. Um, I love the multidisciplinary team approach to everything. Like you need a transplant pharmacist. You need your transplant nephrologist. You need your transplant hepatologist. We have social workers, our coordinators. I just love the team-based approach and making decisions together. I love that everyone on the team has expertise that's needed. I love the 
longevity. So once you transplant someone, they're your patient forever. And there's a long-term relationship that's involved with our patients. So there's there's so much that I love about it. To me, it just makes a lot of sense. I love teaching. I think there's a lot of teaching and opportunity for making sure people understand what end organ disease failure is and talking to people in the community about how to even prevent end-stage liver disease, preventing end-stage kidney disease. But once it happens, here are some signs and symptoms that you can look for. Here is a treatment for end organ failure, liver transplant, kidney transplant, pancreas transplant. What does this mean? Making sure people in our communities understand organ donation because we don't have enough organs for everyone Mm -hmm. who needs them. But also a lot of people who need organs are not even on the waiting list. So making sure that all of our patients have access to organ donation and have access to doctors who can provide them transplantation and making sure that people understand everything that's involved with that. So I love talking to patients, answering questions. There is a lot of distrust that's appropriate. And so being able to be available to talk about whatever questions patients have so that I can help bring clarity and make sure that they know if they end up needing a transplant or a loved one needs a transplant, that they feel safe and confident in the process and that they know they have doctors who care about them and who want to help them in the hospital. It's big for me that patients are educated before they're critically ill and they're scared or what have you. I I just want to provide information and empower patients to understand what goes on in the hospital before they get there so that hopefully they're not as scared and that they have some understanding before they're in a moment of crisis in the hospital, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, it's so beautiful. Everything you just described doesn't make me want to do transplant surgery, but (laughs) Hopefully somebody out there listening feels super inspired. (laughs) You've always been so passionate about all this and the beautiful things you mentioned about making urine on the table and bile were lost on me as the anesthesiologist until now you put some context to it. I understand Mm -hmm. how incredible that must be for the fellowship. Mm -hmm. It's a two-year fellowship after general surgery residency. Two years. And then can you break down how that fellowship's composed? Yeah. So I I went to Emory and I truly believe like I've just been very blessed. Like everywhere I've been trained, I just feel like God put the right people in my life. Like I loved my fellowship training. I can't say enough about enough positive things about the people who trained me at Emory and really took care of me at Emory. But it's two years of fellowship and most of the fellowship programs are run by the ASTS. So there, it's a formal 
training curriculum that needs to be completed and you have to do a certain amount of kidney transplants and liver transplants and pancreas transplants, as well as a certain amount of procurements and living donor operations in order to receive your certificate. And um, how many procurements? I think the number is, I want to say 30 is the number that you need to do deceased donors. But most programs do a lot more than that. But it varies. Different programs have different strengths. Some programs are more liver heavy. Some are more kidney heavy. Some are balanced. And some like Emory, we did a lot of living donor procurement. So lap donor nephrectomies, we actually, I actually did a lot more of those than even deceased donor operations. But ultimately I did all the things I needed to do to graduate. But um, at Emory, we do like four month rotations. So Mm -hmm. when I was there and things are always changing, but um, when I was there, there were three fellows at one time. So it was one fellow one year, then the next year would be two fellows and the next year was one and two. So there were three fellows at any given time. Now there are four fellows at Emory. But when I was there, there were three of us at any given time. So we did four month blocks. So it was four months of liver, four months of kidney, four months of donor. Uh, And then you would rotate and the -hmm. next year do four months of each again. Um, And it was busy. It was very busy. But it was great. And I always make sure applicants, again, really try and figure out the culture of the program that they're interested in. So obviously you want to be trained well, you want to be at a busy place. And this is same for residency as well. This is your training. So it's a finite period of time where you need to try and obtain all the skills that you need in order to be successful at the next level. So that doesn't mean you need to be ill mentally, physically, spiritually, (laughs) emotionally, but you want to take advantage of your training because once you're done, that's it. So it was very busy at Emory. However, people really cared about each other. And I think the fellows are the center of everything. It's a very fellow centric program. So our faculty always wanted to make sure we, as the fellows, were getting the best experience and they would always prioritize us as far as teaching. But they recognized when we were tired or exhausted and there were many times where different faculty would look at me and say, you're grumpy or you're not acting like you usually act. Are you okay or is everything all right? Or they would just say, you need to go home and we'll take care of the progress notes. We'll take care of that eval. We can run rounds without you go home and you rest. And then, you know, we'll see you tomorrow or we'll see you tonight or what have you. But um, it was an excellent place to train because I feel like I got to see and do everything, but I didn't lose myself. And people really really cared about me as an individual, not just as a transplant surgeon. They knew how much I loved my family. And when family was in town, they, I feel like they were really great about saying, okay, you should go spend time with them. And then when you're done, we'll let you know if anything's going on or they, they knew I wanted to be around as much as I could, but they also knew 
that there are other things that I love, including my family. And even when I started dating in fellowship, they would ask me like, Ooh, what's going on? And how are things? And <laughs> And yeah, it's nice to be somewhere where you can be yourself. You know, you don't have to lose, you don't have to lose the other things in your life that make, that make you a great surgeon. A lot of people had families, a lot of people had hobbies that they loved. And it was nice to see faculty who I admired and who I was learning from be more than just a transplant surgeon, yeah. watch them be parents, watch them be adventurers. One of my faculty members, she was in a different like continent every couple of months, hiking and seeing the world and, but also an incredible liver surgeon. Like, so it's very encouraging as you're working hard to become a transplant surgeon to have demonstrative leaders who also do more than just that and who have identities in much more than just being a surgeon. I think that's very important as well. I love it. Did you work with Dr. Wendy Green at all? Do you cross paths? I did. I did. Oh. And I love Dr. Green. I mean, we could probably have a whole another <laughs> podcast about that and what she does for the Black women faculty and fellows at Emory. I mean, there's a, a huge network of um, Black female physicians. And I mean, as soon as she met me, she also included me in this incredible email chain. And I mean, Love they it. were always meeting to, to celebrate accomplishments and encourage one another. And I wish I could have been involved more. Fellowship was so busy, but Dr. Green is an amazing individual. Yeah, she's yeah. incredible. She was my attending at Howard when I was in med school. And, and the reason I'm in anesthesia and critical care. So yeah, yeah. I love Dr. Green. Yeah, she's incredible. As we wrap up, it is the holidays. I'm so glad you you have time to be home now and visit family. Yes. And, and I just love that for you. Love the the growth we've both experienced. I like to end on, on an inspirational tone. And I imagine you're, you've been attending now for a couple of months. What was it like that first patient you transplanted that was like purely your own patient? What did that feel like? It felt incredible. Like I'm, I actually was thinking about her today and she is not a primary English speaker. And so I was really nervous about communicating with her because talking to my patients before surgery is so important to me and making sure they feel safe and understand. And so we utilized the Marty interpreter and I just tried to make sure she understood everything. Her husband was there as well. And I think she, she felt great about the conversation that we had. She made urine on the table and I checked on her like 58 times. I think I even called the hospital overnight because she was anxious about a medication. <laughs> and and so I called her and I was trying to communicate with her through the nurse with this language barrier. Um, and I checked on her even after I was off service and one of my partners took over, I was still checking on her. 
and it felt great. And she did really well. And the best thing though, was one of our coordinators who they share the same primary language. The coordinator texted me and she said, you know, Mrs. J is doing great. And she just said she was so grateful for how you took care of her and her husband said thank you and just that she's so happy that you were her surgeon and her feeling comfortable and confident in the care that she received and her feeling cared about was very important to me. So of course, I'm glad, number one, that she is off dialysis. Her transplant technically went very well. Her recovery went awesome, but I'm so grateful that she felt cared about as well. So it was like, for me, that's what I want patients to experience. Of course, I want to provide them an excellent operation and I want their disease to be taken care of, but I also want to provide them that feeling that I'm not just here to cut on them, but also to just care about them and encourage them. And I think that is in today's world where there's a lot of things that can go wrong, just even with interacting with strangers. It's very important that when I interact with someone that they get that next level care where they feel like my doctor cares about me too. Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. And I was like thinking about her today. So I'm very happy with how everything went for her. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. It speaks to you and what an awesome person you are that you weren't talking about your surgical skills or, or every, your first thought was how comfortable you made her feel and communicated with her, which is just beautiful. And it speaks to who you are as a person. I just want to treat people how I want to be treated. And if it were my family member in the hospital, how I want my family member to be taken care of. So I think Gosh, people I am it. tearing up. Hopefully oh. the, the resolution is not good enough on this camera because, oh, my God. So from 2014, we I'm going to post that, repost that picture from oh. us in the OR. The first time I didn't know what I was doing at the head of the bed <laughs> as you a first year seizure resident. But you are always so confident elected, professional, like, I'm so glad we got to work together and that we're still close. And I'm so proud of you and the man that you are and, you know, the husband that you are, all the things that you're doing. I miss you guys, Yeah, but I'm so proud of you. Awesome. Well, (laughs) Ashley, thank you so much for coming to the podcast, for sharing the incredible world of transplant surgery and your path into the medical field of course thank you for having me i'm so excited hopefully i can come back again we can talk about more stuff (laughs) anytime we are here because representation matters thanks again for tuning in to this week's episode of the black doctors podcast so excited for a couple things coming up the student national medical association annual medical education conference is the 60th year anniversary definitely want to be in the building is going to be in New Orleans. Number two, look out for next week's episode. I'm going to bring Dr. Bianca Bush back on the show, the college psychiatrist. We're talking about setting goals. It is the new year. I know we're two or three weeks in enough time to not be wishing everybody happy new year. But as we, we're starting out the new year, we're going to start out right. And we're going to talk with Dr. Bush about 
healthy goal setting. She's going to talk about this uh, this new framework for setting these goals uh, in a way that that you don't feel that that stress of of not accomplishing goals. It's a way that's kind of uh, uh, helpful and encouraging throughout the journey and process. So you want to definitely tune in. And then Dr. Nate Jones joins us as well to share uh, some of his thoughts on setting goals. Thanks so much for rocking with us. We are here because representation matters.